Good morning. John, when you uh, asked me to uh, give the charge for uh, this meeting today for the congregation, I immediately picked up the dictionary to look up what a charge uh, really means. And the first definition I came to was that it is really a measure of gunpowder, which when ignited causes a projectile to be propelled with great force. And I've known you a long time, and you have never required an external physical force to propel you. Um, I have... I've been able to observe John leading congregations through difficult times, through joyous times, and he's done so with great energy. And John, I know that you will do that again. But I look further for the definition of charge, and I think this one is much more appropriate. A charge is a statement of instruction regarding an obligation or a requirement. Now, I have no authority to give a charge to a pastor. But Christ, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, unfortunately, um, gave a very wonderful charge to the church at Philippi. Paul, of course, had great affection for the church at Philippi. In writing from probably a Roman prison, he was able to convey to the bishops, to the deacons, and also to the congregation the charge, the instruction that he felt was important, modeled through his own writing and then modeled through uh, the commands and, and obligations that he conveyed. I wanted to very briefly review four. First, through Paul's model, he conveys that, John, you should love and pray for this congregation regularly. In all that you do, express that love and pray for them daily. The Apostle Paul in, one, uh, in chapter 1, verse 2 writes, I thank my God for every remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, making request for you, all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So, John... Paul is imploring you to love and pray for this congregation after his own model. Secondly, John, Paul implores to lead with humility as modeled by Christ. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind, a mind of humility, be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of a man, he humbled himself even to the point of death and even death on the cross. So John Paul is imploring the bishops, the deacons, the congregation to lead with humility as modeled by Christ himself. Thirdly, John, I know you will divide Scripture carefully and centrally preaching faith in Christ alone as a means of justification and eternal salvation. In chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, Paul writes, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which would be from the law, but that which through faith in Christ alone, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. John, once again, Paul is imploring to divide the scripture carefully and centrally preaching that faith alone in Christ is the means of salvation. And fourthly, enjoy and grow, John, in your own Christian life as in the corporate life of this church. Paul implores you to do such. In chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, Paul writes, And this I pray, that your love will abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. John, enjoy your own Christian life. Grow in your own Christian life and do so corporately with this congregation. My prayer is that you, John, will be propelled not by a physical force, but by Christ's charge as written through Paul to the Philippians. With great affection and prayer, living out the humble Christ-like example before this body, divide scripture carefully, keeping central the preaching of justification through faith in Christ alone, all the while enjoying the Christian life, growing in your Christian life together with this congregation that you share. John, I pray that God will pour out his blessings upon you and upon each member of this congregation. John, we have three questions for you. Um, number one, 
are you now willing to take charge of this congregation as their pastor, agreeable to your declaration in accepting this call? Do you conscientiously believe and declare, as far as you know your own heart, that in taking upon you this charge, you are influenced by a sincere desire to promote the glory of God and the good of the church? Yes, sir. And number three, do you solemnly promise that by the assistance of the grace of God, you will endeavor faithfully to discharge all the duties of a pastor to this congregation and will be careful to maintain a deportment in all respects, becoming a minister of the gospel of Christ, agreeable to your ordination engagements. Thank you. The reading of Scripture comes today from the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 24. Please hear the word of our Lord. <clears throat> After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your, for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, will, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you will not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up upon the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And we had taken counsel with the people. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. As they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sat, sat on an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, 
they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, they were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. This is the inerrant and infallible word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join with me in confessing our sins together, reading the prayer of confession. Almighty Father, we desire the power to be in us that will accomplish what is beyond our imagination in your kingdom. We confess that we have not looked to you and waited for your power. We have tried to build your church without your spirit. We have tried to do your work in our own strength. We have trusted too much in our energy, our ingenuity, and our resources. Empty us of all arrogance and self-sufficiency. Father, fill us with your spirit. Fill us that we will be supernaturally meek to confess, repent, and rejoice. Fill us that we will be humbly bold in Christ. Teach us to pray in your spirit, to read the scriptures in your spirit, and to walk in your spirit. May we see with the eyes of Christ, hear with the ears of Christ, know with the mind of Christ, and love with the heart of Christ. O oh, Father, hear us in the name of your dear Son. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, indeed, we do confess that you are the God to whom all blessings flow. Father, everything we have, everything we own comes from you. and We, we thank you for, those, for, for all that you've given us. Father, we pray now in light of the gospel, in light of the forgiveness that we have in Christ alone, Father, that as we give back a portion to you, that you would use these gifts, you would use these offerings to further your kingdom. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. It is an incredible honor to be able to give this charge to the congregation for a day to such a special person, my mentor, my spiritual leader, someone I have admired for the last 20 years, and it is indeed a great day. And Paul, I will agree with you wholeheartedly. He requires no external uh, energy to propel him forward, other than the Holy Spirit, of course. But other than that, uh, uh, his, uh, he's an amazing person. With any charge to the congregation, uh, I think there, I've boiled this down to its most empirical form. And we answer two questions. Who are we? Who are we right now today? And number two, where do we need to go? Who are we? Our identity. We're a diverse group of people. Look around. We're all ages, from newborns to 90-plus years old. We come from different backgrounds. We have different opinions, different vocations. We're truly a countywide church. Our membership and our regular attenders span from LaGrange to Eastern Shelby County. We have members from Laconia, Collierville, Piperton, Yum Yum, Somerville, Rossville, Warren, Oakland, and everywhere in between. Secondly, we have been blessed and we enjoy remarkable unity. Unity within the body of believers and among the congregation and regular attenders. Unity among the session, the deacons, and the church staff. Thirdly, we have been incredibly blessed from a financial and material perspective. We enjoy this beautiful building on 20 acres that is our own. When we closed our permanent loan in the fall of this year, we have a debt-to-equity ratio of almost 50%, which is, is, is fascinating for a young, fledgling church. We have a very healthy financial statement. We have members, officers, and staff who understand giving, tithing, and stewardship. And we have individuals, many of whom are here today, outside of our congregation, who have bought into the vision of Christ Presbyterian Church and have supported us beyond measure with their financial and prayer support. 
All of this being said, of who we are and how blessed we have been up to this point in time, the next question is where do we go from here? How do we support John as our senior minister? What do we need to do next as a congregation? Number one, continue to work hard to know and love each other. As John walked us through the Apostle John's um, books this summer, he said, Beloved, love one another. You can't overemphasize that. Foster intentional relationships, life on life, in the trenches, in the good, and in the bad. Number two, continue to pray for each other individually and for Christ Presbyterian Church corporately. As John tells us faithfully every single week, be priest for each other and for Fayette County. Pray for this church. Pray for unity, perseverance, and conversions that people's lives and hearts would be changed. Pray that Christ Presbyterian Church would be an anchor of God's word and truth in this county. And that out of her, out of this church, we would raise numerous, many godly generations with a heart for Christ. Thirdly, pray for this man, pray for John individually. We look at John, and I know I have this tendency, and I'm sure you do. We see this magnanimous leader, strong, confident, very learned, scholar, theologian, work ethic off the charts, a larger-than-life figure, very talented, very gifted. However, and he'll tell you this every single day, left to his own talents and strengths, it's not enough. Pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would continue to indwell him and that the power of the Holy Spirit would always flow through his words, his actions, and his teaching. Pray for John. Pray for his family. Pray for his work as senior minister of this church. And I challenge you to pray for him and everything we have listed above as consistently, persistently, and fervently as he has always prayed for this congregation. Next, pray for our state and our nation. This is beyond us. It's beyond Fayette County. Our nation is turning away from God at mock speed. The hearts of the people around us in this country have grown cold to the Lord. And it is obvious if you look around. Pray that their eyes, ears, and hearts would be opened and quickened by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for a great revival for our nation in the next generation. Lastly, Continue as a body to be thankful, full of praise, taking nothing for granted, and ask for God's continued blessing. As the Apostle Paul said in the closing of his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, he says three things. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen. We have four members for you, the members of this congregation. Four questions, excuse me, for you, the members of this congregation. Question number one. Do you, the people of Christ Presbyterian, continue to profess your readiness to receive John Sartell, whom you have called to be your pastor? Do you? Do you promise to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love and to submit to him in the due exercise of discipline? Do you? Thirdly, do you promise to encourage him in his labors and to assist his endeavors for your instruction and spiritual edification? Do you? And lastly, do you engage to continue to him while he is your pastor that competence, worldly maintenance which you have promised and to furnish him with whatever you may see needful for the honor of the faith and for his comfort among you? Do you? Amen. 
John, I would ask that you would stand, and if the members of the commission would come forward and surround John in support while Dr. Cruz offers a prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, almighty, loving, and merciful, we rejoice today in your grace towards us. We are gathered to worship you and give thanks for your continued blessings on us and especially on the ministry of John Sartell. You have blessed him and gifted him to faithfully preach the gospel of Christ from Cedar Bluff to IPC to Tate's Creek, and now to Christ Presbyterian Church. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in John, eyes have been opened, ears unstopped, and lives changed, as your word has, ca has called men unto yourself. Thank you for this. We thank you for Janet and her faithful witness and support of John's ministry, Please continue to heal her body from this dreadful disease and grant her many more years on earth to faithfully serve you. Surround this church in John's ministry with a hedge that will prevent Satan and his agents from interfering with your work. We give thanks to you for all your blessings in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior. Amen. I now pronounce and declare that John Sartell has been regularly elected and installed pastor of this congregation, agreeable to the word of God, and according to the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as such he is entitled to all support, encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. We're going to have mercy on you. You don't. Turn this on, don't I? Sorry. Would it be easier for me to use this? This is an honor for me um, to get to be with you. Um, as, as was introduced, I'm, my name is Robert Cunningham, and I'm, I'm coming from uh, Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church in Lexington, where John um, served faithfully for years. And uh, it is a joy for me to get to be with your congregation this morning. Um, for a couple of reasons, the first being that I get to finally see you and meet you and uh, see this church and this lovely congregation that John speaks so highly of. Uh, he loves this church. Um, every pastor has to tell their congregation they love them, and uh, that's part of the job. But what you really want to hear is what a pastor says to another pastor when no one's around. And, uh, and, and he can't stop talking about how much he loves this congregation. And so what he says to you is true. He, he loves this place. And so it's, it's, it's fun for me to see uh, the place that he has really uh, grown to love. Uh, the second reason I love being here this morning is that when, when, when Sartell left Tate's Creek, I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to a new uh, church in, in Fayette County in Tennessee called Christ Presbyterian Church. I'm going to be the assistant pastor there. And um, I said, so how long until you're a senior pastor? He said, no, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm going to be assistant pastor. I'm going to write a little bit more, take it easy. I said, so how long are you going to be to your senior pastor there? He said, no, no, I mean it. I really mean it. I'm going to be the assistant and, uh, and, and slow down a little bit. So uh, this is the installation service of the Reverend John P. Sartell to senior minister of Christ Presbyterian Church. And this is the vindication service of Robert Cunningham. And um, 
it is a joy to be here. We actually had a bet that he has not paid up on with that. And uh, uh, Turn to your passage that was read earlier uh, from, from St. Chronicles. Uh, I think there's a printout for you there. And we'll spend some time looking at it. This is the first time I've ever... Uh, this is the first time I've ever preached and had to compete with cows for your attention, but we'll, uh, we'll see how this goes. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the goodness, this congregation, their clear love for John and John's clear love for them. Uh, you are good, and uh, just as an outsider looking in, it's, it's fun for me to, to witness the goodness of the Lord um, here in this church. Uh, as we open your word... We trust you, we trust you, God, and that we will see marvelous things from your law, that you will open our eyes, and we will leave here more in love, more devoted, more humble, um, more in awe and worship of our God. Use this time in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Sermon title is The Mighty Weakness of Christ Presbyterian Church. Um, and what I want to look at, and I thought of this passage, because, because honestly this passage reminds me um, a lot of John. I'll, mean, I'll talk about that in a minute. But I thought of this passage uh, because it really strikes at the backwards nature of the way of Scripture, the way of the kingdom of God, the way of God in this world. Uh, the man that you just installed, um, the man you just installed as senior minister um, is, as, as, as was said during the charge, is a, is a man of strength, of competency. Um, he has this presence. Um, he actually sounds like God when he talks. Um, he's got a lot going for him. And... Um, and He, to me, to me, Sartell, um, you know, uh, he's been a mentor and a hero. To, to me, he's the embodiment of, of, of this strength. The story I like to tell people uh, when, when they ask me, you know, what, when I, what I think about when I think about John is when I, I was newly hired out of seminary, like Tyler, and I'm so excited, by the way, you, you uh, so excited that he's, he's here. You're going to love him, but... Um, Newly hired out of seminary, exact same situation um, at Tate's Creek, and um, it's my first year of marriage. And my wife wanted to get a, a dog. She wanted a dog, and and uh, she wanted one of these just little fluffy uh, lap dog deals. And um, and we went back and forth about it. And you know, she she of course won that debate. And so I bought her this dog, and she was so excited about it. She wanted to take it everywhere. And um, we're new to town, newly hired, and the Sartells are having to over for dinner. And she said, she said, we got to bring Bailey to meet Jack. I'm like, no, no, we do not have to bring Bailey to meet, meet Jack. Jack, of course, you know, is his prize hunting dog. It's a dog that a man should have. Mine was this, you know, little gerbil. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, so, uh, and so, you know, I lost that first year of marriage argument. We showed up at the Sartell's house with our little, uh, little hamster and, and uh, knock on the door. And, um, and she's carrying the food in, so she's like, well, you got to carry Bailey. So in this picture, how emasculating is this? I'm newly hired, out of seminary, walking to John Sartell's house with this little lap dog, ring the doorbell, he opens the door, and, and he looks at it and he goes, what's that? <laughs> and um, I said, it's our, it's our new dog, Abby's new dog, Bailey. And, uh, and he said, well, let's take her outside and let her play with Jack. I said, Okay. So we go outside, uh, he's in the backyard, our little, our little lap dog's just kind of as tall as the grass at this point, little puppy. Jack, I'm not making a story up, Jack runs out to our dog, lifts his leg, and pees on my dog. <laughs> and, and I'm not making this up. Sartell starts laughing, goes, boy, Jack. <laughs> All right. That's John Sartell. In my mind, in my imagination, that's Sartell. And, um, and that's, that's the king in our passage. That's Jehoshaphat. Um, a man of vision, a man of strength, a man that was a leader of God's people. And what we're going to see, though, 
is that God takes this strong man and positions him um, in a position of weakness. And it's in the position and posture of weakness where he and the nation find power. Um, Two thoughts here. We're going to look at the weakness of our own strength and the strength of our own weakness. Let 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 me explain the context here. The king... As I said of Judah at the time as Jehoshaphat, he hasn't been the best king, but toward the end of his reign, he famously goes through this season of repentance. And this is all in chapter 19 before you can, you can go read that this afternoon. But he leads the nation through a time of just wonderful reforms. Uh, and chapter 19 deals with all those reforms. He establishes judges who will rule um, with justice according to the fear of the Lord. He restores the ministry of the priesthood, which had been forgotten and neglected. He gives order, he gives direction, he gives guidance, he gives vision to Judah. Judah's in a good place. It feels as if a new day has dawned, and perhaps the healthiest place that Judah's ever been. And, uh, you know, I don't know much of your history, but I probably relate to that here. Um, this is exciting times. This is, this is wonderful times. And then chapter 20 happens. All the surrounding nations together conspire for Judah's destruction. Now, isn't that interesting? Just when everything is going well in Judah, Judah is about to be annihilated. Now, what do you suppose God is up to with that strange twist of providence? Here's what I think is happening. Judah had it all, but it was lacking the key and central component, dependence, weakness. The right leadership was in place. The correct infrastructure had been established. The people had all bought in to the vision and the changes. All of the keys to success are there, and yet they are ripe for failure. And they are ripe for failure because they are ripe for self-reliance and self-sufficiency and pride. And so what God does is he mercifully positions them on the brink of their own destruction, taking them literally to the edge of the abyss and letting them look out face-to-face with their weakness and destruction, face-to-face with the weakness of their own strength, and to learn the painful yet blessed lesson of dependency. He gets this confident nation led by this confident leader to the point where they are so scared, so helpless, so desperate that all they know to do is cry out to the Lord. Watch it unfold. Chapter 19 happens. All the reforms are in place. And then you don't have this in, in your, I'll just, it's one verse, you don't have this in your, your hand out there, but for those of you with the Bible, uh, the last phrase of chapter 19, deal courageously and may the Lord be with the upright. Doesn't that sound like something Sartell would say? It's like those words are written for his voice. Deal courageously and may the Lord be with the upright. Chapter 20. After this, the Moabites, Ammonites, some of the Midianites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came to Jehoshaphat and said, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazah, which is essentially their border. They're at the border. <laughs> now, watch the change in disposition. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. I love that. The confident leader the man with all the answers in chapter 19 is scared. And he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast through all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. The gifted leader with his excellent nation has collectively fallen to their knees in fear. And so Jehoshaphat does the only thing he knows to do. He prays. He leads the nation in prayer. And look at the last sentence of his prayer, the embodiment of desperation and dependence. Really the verse why I chose this passage. Verse 12. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. Chapter 19, they knew everything to do. And all of a sudden, God is like that, taken to the point where we're saying, we don't know what to do. Now, Here is the foolishness of biblical wisdom. They are now in this moment surrounded by enemies on all sides, seeing and owning their helplessness, admitting their weakness and their strength. They are now 10,000 times more powerful than they were in chapter 19 when they had it all together. Here's the point. 
And this is reinforced on every single page of Scripture. In every other realm, greatness is found in competency. Within the kingdom of God, greatness is found in dependency. In every other realm, whether it be athletics, medicine, business, art, science, anything else you do in this world, greatness is found in competency. Within the kingdom of God, within the business of this place, greatness is found in dependency. It is not that competency doesn't matter. Of course it does. Of course we install John because he's a theologian. He knows how to preach. He knows how to lead. He's a competent. Of course, that stuff matters. All of these things matter. The reforms of chapter 19 were a good move by Judah. They needed to happen. But it just can't end there. Gifted leadership, vision, all of these things are important, but they can only take you so far. But here's the point. All of those things, accompanied with a posture of humble desperation, crying out to the Lord for help, that's when revival starts taking over. And God has mercifully positioned Judah in such a way. Now, Judah would probably not label it mercy. Um, God's humbling is often scary, and it isn't pleasant, and it is painful. In fact, it can be terrifying. But it is the mercy of God when he gives you the gift of dependency. It is the mercy of God to come to grips with the weakness of your strength, even if it comes by the hand of his better providence. And that is what is happening in our text. He takes Judah and he terrifyingly brings them to the point where all they know to do is cry out to God. It's not just that they are praying for God to bless their efforts. Literally, their only effort is to pray, Lord, we don't know what to do. But here's the tricky part. Dependence, humility, desperation, helplessness, these things, they are not something that can be conjured up, right? The reason why the nation is crying out, we don't know what to do, is because they actually don't know what to do. And this is what makes application so difficult for us. How in the world are we supposed to apply this story to the first 21st century American context surrounded not by enemies, but by prosperity and comfort? Well, here would be my answer. You are actually in this moment as dependent as Judah is in chapter 20. You are as dependent and desperate. You just need eyes to see it. We've been fooled. Those difficult seasons of your life, like, like that Janet and John have had to go through this, this year, those difficult seasons of life that we all journey through when we feel utterly helpless and desperate, they are not isolated moments of dependence. They are reminders of dependence. And let, me, let me put it this way. This is really important. We are always desperate, but it's in the moment of weakness that we have eyes to see and feel our desperation. Judah needed God in chapter 19 just as much as they needed God in chapter 20. It's just that in chapter 20, God graciously let them see it. So here's why that is important for us in our context. Do not be deceived. Do not be fooled by the veneer of prosperity and progress. You are right now, in this very moment, totally and utterly helpless and dependent upon God. And let us not wait for disaster to befall us to embrace that truth. So let me help us. I mean what I just said, that we're, we are in this moment as desperate as Judah in, in chapter 20. But let me, let me show you. Let me pull back the curtain and help us imagine the truer things going on around us. Let me remind you, Christ Presbyterian Church, let me remind you what you're up against. First, you live in a world that is antithetical to God in every way. Since the fall, every culture is the same, a mixture, yes, of so much beauty, but also deep and profound brokenness as well. And ours is not the exception. When you consider the progression of secularism with all of its implications, when you consider the celebration of sin that is all around us, when you consider the marginalization of all religious claims, Christianity in America will soon be in crisis as it is in the rest of the West. With all the young families here, and I love to see that. It's so wonderful. I'm in that category too. But we do need to understand and reckon with the fact that our children will be labeled as ignorant, antiquated fools if they believe what you believe. It is going to be very difficult for your children to be Christians. doesn't mean that they won't. 
It just means when they do, it, they will be making a choice that is totally outside the reigning plausibility structure of our culture. Like most of the West, there simply will not be a category for your children if they want to follow Jesus. So reality check here. Our culture with its billions of billions of dollars in media, its massive institutional structures, its near monopoly on higher education, give me a break, the world laughs at a nice little congregation out in Fayette County. That's cute. You guys getting together and doing your religion thing. It's not just the world laughing at us, it's the prince of this world. As scary as the world may be, let us not forget that these are just manifestations of a much greater battle that is taking place around us as we speak, well, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We aren't playing games here. The powers of hell utterly abhor this church and what you're trying to do here. And as glad as I am to see you here, and as much as John and, and the leadership wants you to be a part of this, you need to know that by doing so, you are choosing to place yourself in the crosshairs of satanic forces. And I truly mean that. I believe Satan loathes this place. And he's very angry at what just happened with John Sartell. And he will do everything possible to undo it. It's not just the world, though. It's not just the evil forces of the world. We haven't even gotten to the greatest enemy, the greatest, the, uh, the enemy within, right? Forget the world, forget the devil. Like every church I know, you are probably experts at devouring yourselves. People get amazed by church scandals. I'm amazed they don't happen every day. You are always just moments away from anger and hatred and envy and bitterness and gossip and slander and sexual indiscretions and hunger for power and control. You are just moments away from these things destroying this place. And if you're thinking, well, not me, I'm, I'm not the one who's going to do it, then you're really a threat to this place. And listen, I know your minister. He's one of my heroes. I owe him a debt I'll never be able to repay. I love him, and he's just as bad as you. Don't let him fool you beneath the suit and southern charm. Is a man, were it not for the grace of God, would mess this place up too. So, let me be really honest. When you consider the world around this church, the powerful forces of evil that despise this church, and the sinners that fill this church, this church has no chance. Now, do you feel the angst rising up? I would say good, give way. Give way to the desperation. Feel the weakness of your own strength because that's exactly where you need to be. Is this not the most depressing installation service you have ever attended? <laughs> so you say, preacher, what are we supposed to do? And I would say, exactly, you just quoted Judah. We don't know what to do. We don't have to have armies around us to cry out, God, we don't know what to do. We need only to wake up to the realities that are around us every day and own our weakness. And then when you're there, you know what you do? You pray. You pray a lot. In a world of arrogant evangelicalism, with all of its gift-talk celebrity nonsense, with its culture of experts and self-sufficiency ministry techniques and mimicking the savvy ways of our culture. Novel idea. How about this church just be a church that prays? A lot. Collectively crying out, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Whenever a community like that assumes a posture like that, revival comes. And it is there in the admission of weakness of your strength that God's power shall be made perfect in your weakness. We've seen the weakness of our strength. Let's look at the strength of our weakness. This is very important. Desperate humility does not lead to the loss of confidence. It is the pathway into a truer confidence. Our self-confidence goes to the grave so that a new confidence in the Lord might be resurrected. 
So as we go through the painful purging of our strength, the coming to the end of ourselves, what happens every time is we are surprised to discover on the other side a new strength, a new hope, a new confidence that was previously unavailable while our eyes were upon ourselves. That's what happens in our text. The proud king has nowhere else to turn, so he turns to the Lord. And essentially he brings to mind two things. You, God, are sovereign, and you have always leveraged that sovereignty for the deliverance of your people. Look as he proclaims the Lord's sovereignty in verse 6. O Lord, our God, our fathers, are you not the God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. He's looking at this impossible situation with powerful nations gathered against him. He says, yeah, but you rule over those nations. Yes, this threat is more powerful than me, but it's not more powerful than you. And this is true of every threat of every enemy. God reigns, and in his hand is power and might and sovereignty, and knowing no one and nothing can stay his hand. But it's not just that he's sovereign. He has a track record of using that sovereignty for the good of his people, for their deliverance. That's what Jehoshaphat brings to mind. Did you not, our God, drive out inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? Did you not give to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's saying, aren't you the same God that did the impossible in the first place? That conquered the powerful nations to give us the possession of this land originally? This is what you've always done, God. Do it again. Do it again. And the Lord indeed does it. As has happened so many times in so many ways throughout redemption history, God hears the prayer of the desperate and he responds with deliverance. Look at verse 15. The prophet speaks up. Listen, Judah, and all inhabitants of Jerusalem, and listen, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, and thus says the Lord to you, Christ Presbyterian Church. Do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, it is God's. I love that. The battle is not yours, it's God's. Do you know what owning your weakness and strength does? Is It takes the battle off your shoulders and places it on the Lord and he can handle it. Verse 17, you're not going to need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And God wasn't kidding. Essentially, the armies which have assembled against Judah get confused and destroy themselves. (laughs) And when Judah comes out to fight the next day, they're greeted by a valley of corpses. And in this way, 2 Chronicles 20 takes its place in a long history of dependence met by deliverance. Just another chapter within the same story of God blessing weakness. You ever wonder why? Why does it seem like every story in the Bible is the same? Weak people, God saves the day. Just on a loop throughout the Bible. Why does God do it this way? Why does his kingdom advance through weakness? Well, it is in this way that God gets the glory. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to triumph over the strong, because it is in this way that it will only clearly be his work, his strength, his wisdom, his power, and in this, way, in this way it shall be his fame. He loves it when people say, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you, because then God says, now that all eyes are upon me, watch me work. God promises Abraham, I'm, I'm going to fix the world through your descendants. Abraham waits and waits. He's past childbearing years. His wife is past childbearing years. Lord, <laughs> we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Okay, now that your eyes are upon me, I'll give you a son. Moses leads God's people out of slavery. They come to the shores of the vast sea. Pharaoh's armies bearing down upon them. They have no escape. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. God parts the sea. The people walk through dry land, and he drowns Pharaoh's armies as they pursue. Joshua standing at the edge of the promised land, looking out at this just unapproachable, fortified city with its legendary walls, skilled soldiers. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the walls come down, and God gives his people the promised land. The people of Israel are paralyzed by the Philistine army and this great champion, Goliath. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God takes a shepherd boy and a slingshot and slays the giant. And on and on, every Old Testament story goes 
until a strange twist of the story when, when this man Jesus comes on the scene and what happens is a change in where the eyes go. The desperate start looking towards this man and saying, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the deaf hear, and the lame walk, and the leprous are cleansed, and the blind see, and ultimately, sinners, millions upon millions of sinners have looked upon this Jesus and said, I don't know what to do with this, (laughs) but my eyes are upon you. And our eyes follow him to a lonely hill and a rugged cross to see him do the impossible. Forgive the unforgivable. Justify the unjustifiable. Love the unlovable. Save the unsalvageable. But then they bury him. And all of creation looks at a tomb where our hope is buried, saying, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And three days later, once again, the impossible happens, and hope rises from its own death. And now here you are. 2,000 years later, a congregation that knows not what to do, installing a minister, don't let him fool you, that knows not what to do. But our eyes, O God, are upon you. Let me pray and take us there. God, we look to you in our weakness and our helplessness. Our eyes are upon you. Our eyes are not upon the skill, the theology, the strength, the work ethic of John Sartell. We bless you for those things. Those are gifts from you, and you will use them. But, Lord, our eyes are on you. Lord, we are up against so much. But we know that if we will own that, if we will confess that, and if we will look to you, you will do what you have always done for your people. You will come, and you will work for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Bless this church. Bless John, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me? Nothing is more an act of dependence than to confess a creed that has nothing to do with you and your strength. This is all about God. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.